Hello, hello, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and this week I'm joined by the other guy. Say hello, other guy. I'm Brian. <laughs> I uh, nope. Here. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. It's been a while. I mean, he's wrong been... already. I mean, it was just the introduction. It's been a while. He's already wrong. That little motto. <laughs> so, uh, as you can see, folks, uh, we are kicking it old school. Uh, nope, I'm not even bothering to turn the camera on today because we're talking to Dale, and uh, we don't we don't need a camera for this. You don't want to see this. You don't you don't want to see how the sausage is made. You want to you want to hear the sausage. You want to taste the sausage. This analogy has gotten away from me. Uh, Dale, we're talking uh, today because we're not uh, talking with uh, you and uh, Val which was supposed to be today. And then we realized at the last minute we had some <laughs> scheduling conflicts. And so uh, the free will show will happen on the 26th of June, officially in my off season. So already my off season is going to be starting off on the wrong foot because I will not be off. Um, but the show will be on. So anyone who tuned in uh, for that today, uh, it is coming, I promise, uh, starting next week, uh, we will have uh, our very brief series, hopefully a two-show series, it could be three, a two-show series on Satan, God of this world. Um, it will be interesting, I promise. Um, but today, today, uh, Dale has uh, volunteered to uh, step in and fill the gap that uh, there would have been uh, by uh, discussing his uh, fairly new thesis on uh, the aesthetic argument, or to be more precise, the argument from beauty. In the first season, Dale and I talked about doing a show on this. And if I recall correctly, I'm the one who kind of put the kibosh on it to the extent that either one of us could put the kibosh on anything. Um, the fact is we could, each person could talk about whatever they wanted to. It's just a matter of how interested the other person was and what kind of show it would have been. And I, I just didn't want to talk about it. I thought it was a ridiculous argument. And strangely enough, it, this argument is often uh, paired with the argument from numbers, uh, not numbers, the, the Bible book, but numbers as in, um, well, numbers, maybe, maybe Dale might talk about that. I'm, I, I don't actually know why these two arguments are often put together because they're very different. But um, I think uh, these are two of the worst arguments, uh, apologetic arguments that the Christian has. Um, and if anything, this argument from, uh, beauty is probably worse than the argument from numbers for me. Um, and so while I still think the argument, uh, is terrible, uh, overall, uh, I think that, uh, Dale has some, uh, some thoughts on the subject that are interesting enough to, uh, talk about, and we'll see if he can convince me that the argument is you know, something more than ridiculous <laughs> because it, it just seems intuitively ridiculous. And uh, when you think about it hard enough, maybe it's not. Uh, but I think that you will have to think about it hard enough. So get ready to put on your thinking caps. If you have not uh, listened to Dale's um, solo show on this, uh, you can go to his site, uh, Real Seeker, Real Seeker, Real Seeker Actually, Ministries. Uh, Real Seeker Ministries. Is it dot com? Do you have a dot com? Uh, dot wordpress.com. 
okay, realsecretministry.wordpress.com. Um, and uh, it's also uh, over on uh, Skeptics and Seekers Forum. It's uh, in the one that's um, titled Let's Talk About Sex, even though I am going to uh, put up a blog specifically for this uh, discussion. And so I'll probably uh, just copy that uh, that show back over there. So look, you, you'll be able to find it easily enough. I recommend that you listen to that. Uh, because Dale's got a lot more detail than he's going to be able to go into today. Uh, so today we're going to have a discussion debate over it. Um, discussion, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. For me, I'm not picky. Like people, oh, it's not a debate. Uh, debate, discussion, it's the same thing. Like, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter to me, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, when we're, when we're in the house, it's the same thing. Um, so that said, um, it, it will be a civil discussion, though, at least for the first 20 minutes or so, because I don't plan to do any talking <laughs> for that time. So I'm going to just go ahead and mute my mic. Uh, and Dale, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce the topic. So uh, I guess just first a couple house order, house order things. So, so yeah, if, if uh, those in the audience, skeptics in the audience do listen to my solo show, um, I do just want to let you understand there are some tonal issues. So I do try to inject some humor. I'm, I, you know, I'm not an interesting or entertaining presenter typically. So I, I do tend to spice it up. I was listening to some skeptics kind of say they like, you know, like, oh, you're a lay skeptic or you're an utter fool or, or something like that um, and that kind of tone. But, um, you know, David and uh, Brian kind of mentioned, well, there's skeptics that don't appreciate that that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I, I just wanted to, to call that out and address it. And yeah, if, if it does, if that kind of tone does turn you off, that's not my intention. I, I do want you to try your best to look past that and look to the substantive argument that that's being presented. And yeah, going forward on solo shows, I'll, I'll think over this uh, in terms of the tonal aspect. Um, the second thing I just wanted to mention, so, so David mentioned that the argument from aesthetic values and stuff like that, or beauty, is typically linked with the argument from mathematics. Um, I'm not sure that's that's the case. I'm I'm interested where he got that from because mostly in the literature in the philosophy of aesthetics, it's always linked with the moral argument. Um, you know, so including in articles, they, there's always that linkage between the moral argument because they're both uh, part of axiology, which is the study of value. Uh, and the origin or explanation of values and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to mention that. Okay, so my, my argument in a very simplified nutshell is, okay, so I make an argument, an abductive argument to an inference to the best explanation. I say that uh, my hypothesis, namely that what I call theistic dispositional realism, otherwise known as God uh, or theism, is the best explanation for certain fa aesthetic facts about our reality or about our world. And I have about seven uh, of these facts. Um, so maybe it'll help if I share my screen. I'm able to, okay, so I'm not able to do that. Um, okay, so, so there's seven facts that I think are true about our aesthetic world. Hold, hold on, I can, I can help you share your screen. Yeah, um, it'll help the audience. So I 
if I had known that you wanted to share your screen, I could have set that up in advance. But that's okay. Uh, the audience is used to seeing us um, make the sausage. There goes the sausage again. I haven't had any breakfast this morning. Um, let's see. Mute audio, start video, choose virtual background, choose video filter. I thought there was just a the non-persistent self-view. Profile picture isn't. Yeah. Okay. Tell you what. You you go ahead and talk, and I'm going to see if I can figure out how to help you share your screen. Just so you know, when you see the shared screen, there should be like a little arrow button for you. And if you click on that, then you'll get options to like, you know, go to share settings or something. But um, yeah, all right, cool. So while he's figuring that out, um, so there, there are a list of seven aesthetic facts that I use that I say any given hypothesis has to explain. So what are these facts? So number one, there are aesthetic correctness conditions. Um, so uh, uh, our aesthetic values can be correct or incorrect. Our aesthetic value judgments can be true or false. You can share your screen now. In some sense. Uh, so, okay. Um, and so is that, is that popping up? Yep. Awesome. So, so yeah, here's the one aesthetic correctness conditions kind of thing, as I was saying. So values and judgments can be correct or they're uh, true or false. And I think that when we make um, apply aesthetic terms like, oh, beautiful or ugly or garish, whatever it is, um, we are make, providing these as indicative statements. We are indicating that we think it's true or false that these things are in fact beautiful or ugly or whatever we want to say. Um, so that's the first uh, feature of our reality. And, and just to correct this, so it, it's not, I'm not saying with this feature that it presupposes on what basis the, they're true or false, right? Because truth or falsity could be relative to individual subjects or it could be objective based on a property or something like that. I'm just saying that there are these uh, true or false correctness conditions. Number two, um, we have aesthetic disagreements. And that's an obvious fact. But here I'm saying it's at the level of values um, as well. It's not just about factual disagreements like, oh, well, uh, how many how many people are in this painting? Or what's the, the width of this line or something like that? It, it's we're disagreeing about the value of it itself. Some people think something's beautiful while other people think it's ugly. The third fact is what I call aesthetic refinement. Um, so this is the fact that there is this feature of our aesthetic world where people can become more refined over time in terms of their tastes and aesthetic tastes and they can become educated or develop their aesthetic perceptions and appreciations and stuff like that. The fourth is aesthetic object relevance. So this just says that the properties of the object, the, the object itself, whether it's a beautiful landscape like a mountain or a sunset um, or an artistic object like a painting or a piece of music or whatever it is, um, these are necessarily relevant for grounding aesthetic values and judgments. You, you need the object. Um, the fifth feature here is that an aesthetic subject or agent is also necessary to ground 
aesthetic values and judgments, right? So, so you need a person, someone with a, a mind who can make and evaluate judgment. Beliefs require a mind to exist. Um, and likewise with values, um, I, would, I would say that along with most of the philosophy of aesthetics that uh, what is it that's being valued, that's said to be valuable? Well, it's a, an experience, a proper aesthetic experience within a, a, a given subject of, of some sort. You know, some, some theories have different aspects as to well, what is a proper subject for this aesthetic experience. And there's debates about well, what's the nature of that aesthetic experience. Uh, but pretty much everybody agrees some kind of experience is needed to ground our values. You know, we, we value that experience when I see that piece of art, therefore it's beautiful. I, I don't value it, therefore it's ugly or something like that. The sixth one is, um, so I included this for a specific theory that I didn't cover um, in my essay. And that's why I was a little bit shaky. But I, this was um, the fact that psychologically speaking for human beings, moral values are correlated are with aesthetic value correlations. And they do this on the basis of uh, uh, not just philosophical arguments. So um, I had a quote here, let me just, uh, so, so Tolstoy is famous for quoting, quote unquote, beauty commingles with goodness. So the beauty is goodness made visible and goodness is inner beauty. Um, and this, this is something that this, interesting correlation is something that human beings have made philosophical arguments for for 2,500 years in terms of Western philosophy. There's been various arguments associating moral values and aesthetic values and correlating the two together. Uh, but the thing I wanted to share with the skeptics is who cares about the philosophical arguments? You guys care about empirical science. So cognitive science has proven this link as well, as well as psychology and that sort of thing. So you know, for example, researchers, um, I'm going to butcher his name, Matthew Gis, uh, Lewin and Neil McRae have done studies proving uh, in recent times that um, they've shown that the quote unquote, the charted, they've charted the extent and implications of the beautiful is good stereotype and shown that it is unequivocal uh, within human beings. Um, so there's been various other studies that show there's a link between beauty and the perception that we have better lives. So the beautiful life is the better life. That was done by research by um, Drs. Dion, Bersheed, and Walster. Um, there's also a co close correlation between beauty and having higher expectations for one's moral life. Um, and that's been on the... Uh, a meta-analysis study by Drs. Dusik and Joseph who examined 14 separate studies in this respect regarding quote-unquote physical beauty or attractiveness and its relation to um, higher life or the better moral life expectancy. Um, there's also the fact that beauty, is, beauty has been shown to for human beings to make the person more morally trustworthy. Uh, so that's again, I don't, Dr. Bashkin, Isitz, and Dr. Harris, and they find that, quote unquote, their findings suggest that children are rational agents with a preference for accepting information from benevolent and epistemically superior informants uh, when they see those, when they see them as having an attractive face or something like that. Um, 
uh, also the final two moral moral beauty is perceived as moral as more beautiful than immoral immoral people or something like that um and then finally beauty encourages moral honesty uh so when we see uh these are studies when we see beautiful stuff by uh, jing wang for example um we we it encourages within us to be morally honest and that sort of thing so these are just some of the studies that ground this feature this psychological fact that human beings tend to correlate um moral values with aesthetic values for whatever reason you know whatever the hypothesis wants. that's this is something that has to be explained by an explanatory hypothesis and then finally the final feature is the what i call aesthetic non-deference and this is the tendency within human beings uh, aesthetically not to want to defer uh, to other human beings about their aesthetic value judgments or their aesthetic values you know and and that includes artistic experts and that sort of thing we don't want to defeat uh, defer or concede my judgment of Picasso's paintings as garbage uh, I'm not a fan of abstract art I don't care if everybody else likes it or if uh, the art expert community find this to be great. Um, I have this natural tendency to say, no, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm going to go with my judgment. So, so these are the seven facts. Um, okay, so just before I get into um, explaining, okay, well, what are some of the hypotheses to explain these facts? David, am I clear on these facts? Do you need, if you have any questions of clarification as to what they are? Um, I don't have any questions for clarification uh, except maybe number six um so i don't want to i don't want to derail your speech right now but i can tell you i have some major problems with some of what i heard you saying in number six gotcha okay okay uh so so yeah we'll pin a note in that um, and, and do me a favor and leave that list up uh so when i um when I respond, I, I want to just use that list too, uh, because I'm not taking notes. Everybody knows that's never going to happen. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, okay, cool. So, so now we come to the second part of my argument, which is, okay, great. We've got these aesthetic facts or features. What is the best explanation? Which hypothesis best explains all seven of these things? And this is where my video are going to various hypotheses or quote-unquote isms right so there's emotivism and that's just the view that what grounds is the aesthetic value what's the grounding in nature of aesthetic values and value judgments basically it's just an emotional experience that one has when they see a given work of art and then they make they express their emotions they're not trying to say that it's true or false that this thing is beautiful or ugly um they're just expressing their emotions it's, it's tantamount to saying you're not really saying that it's true or false that this thing is beautiful um you're really just saying uh, uh, uh oh i love i i really um uh you know like yay yay this uh something like that right um there's no truth value to that statement um it, it also struggles with aesthetic value disagreements if we're just expressing our emotions why would that be the case um yeah i, I won't go into much detail about the hypothesis because i know david doesn't want me to do that but just understand so there's that theory and i think it struggles with various features here 
Um, there's also the objectivist view, which says, okay, aesthetic values and value judgments are grounded in some kind of property, uh, either a natural or non-natural property of the object itself. Um, and, you know, that can include certain evolutionary theses, I think, you know, like where the property would be, well, whatever contributes to the survivability of a conscious subject and, and stuff like that. Um, in terms of natural selection or whatever it is. Um, the next theory is subjectivism, right? So this says, okay, all aesthetic values and value judgments can be grounded in the conscious subject entirely. So um, it's really, it's object independent in a way in, in this pure form, right? It, as long as a, a given subject has an aesthetic experience of some type and makes an aesthetic value judgment, um, that's all that's needed to ground these things. And the object is totally not necessary in that sort of thing. And, and I've given, I gave arguments and that sort of thing against that. It, it does seem to me that the object itself is relevant. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll get, we'll get into that if, if David takes that view. Um, okay, um, and then the main, so I think that all of these theses fail in certain ways to explain one or more of these features. And the best naturalistic option is something called dispositional realism. So, so this basically says, no, the, the object is necessary. It has certain properties of a dispositional nature. They dispose us to have a certain experience as, as a, a, you know, an aesthetic experience and thereby make it an aesthetic judgment as an agent. So it covers number four and five properly. Um, and it also uh, is able to handle aesthetic refinement as well, because it says, well, it's who, who is the person that's having this experience? Well, it can't just be anybody, any old subject, like subjectivism says, it has to be a certain qualified individual or a quote unquote ideal judge. And, uh, you know, there are a list of qualifications as to what constitutes an ideal judge that David Hume or, you know, Michael Sloat uh, gave back in 1971 and that sort of thing. We can go back and forth on, on what qualifies someone as an ideal judge, but just keeping it simple for the audience, it, it basically means you're an aesthetic expert. You're, you're someone qualified as an expert in aesthetics and beauty. Uh, and that means you, you, if you have uh, a certain experience and make a certain judgment about something, therefore it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, that provides the explanation for the correctness condition because you're correct insofar as you agree with the experts, you're incorrect insofar as you disagree with those, with the experts and that sort of thing. Um, now, dispositional realism of the natural variety or the atheistic variety, I should say, struggles with aesthetic value disagreements because there are value disagreements even among the experts themselves. They don't all agree. Um, and sometimes it can even split on, on certain valuational matters and stuff like that. Um, so I, I think the dispositional realism of the atheistic variety struggles with number two. Um, it also struggles um, in terms of number seven here, the aesthetic non-deference, because once again, human beings have this tendency, we don't want to defer to other humans, even if they're experts. And, um, you know, that, that can get controversial because there, there is, to some extent, it's true that I do defer to uh, art experts or aesthetic experts in some respects. And I think that's mostly on a factual level, right? They, 
they're, they went to school. They know the facts about any Rembrandt painting or something, things that I have no idea about. And they might share certain facts with me um, and that sort of thing. But on a valuational level, um, we don't want to defer. I don't care if they think this is beautiful. I think Picasso's ugly and it doesn't matter um, what they think. Um, but yeah, the, the one qualification here is, you know, sometimes if you learn certain new facts that can make you value a new piece of art differently and that sort of thing. Um, but the main point here is we don't defer our values um, to, to other people, right? We stick with what we value. And even if our values might change in light of new facts or something like that, we're still, we still don't defer to other people's values. We wait until our values uh, change or something like that before. Um, and then number six, it struggles with number six. So, so this is a, an argument, this fact comes in with what I was calling the theory of atheistic aesthetic Platonism. Um, and that's the view that uh, just says, oh, well, these values kind of just float up in a platonic realm. Like there's beautiful just floating around. The number one is just floating around. The justice or goodness is just floating around as some kind of abstract object or something. So that's why I included this. But even atheistic dispositional realism kind of struggles with this. Why, why would it be the case that moral values would be correlated with aesthetic values in the human psyche? Uh, I'm not sure that that dispositional realism can explain that. Uh, certainly, art experts aren't necessarily moral experts and vice versa. So um, I think it struggles with these three features, number two, number six, and number seven. And my proposal is that theistic, non-natural theistic dispositional realism uh, performs better than the best atheist option, which is this dispositional realism. And it says, well, what's, who's the true ideal judge? It's not human being art experts, it's God. And God, this takes care of number two, all aesthetic value disagreements. There is no disagreement within the Trinity as on aesthetic man matters. So this is uh, fully explained. It, it doesn't um, become an issue. We do have this absolute standard for our aesthetic correctness conditions. It's, well, do our judgments and experiences reflect God or not? We're correct if they do, we're incorrect if they don't. Um, with aesthetic value disagreements, at a human level, you know, this is where I would get into the fall or something like this as a, an explanation as to why um, human beings will sometimes disagree and they won't always reflect God perfectly uh, and that sort of thing. In terms of uh, number three, aesthetic refinement, yep, this makes perfect sense. As we become more educated or more refined in our aesthetic tastes, we become more and more increasingly like God. Uh, yeah, theistic dispositional realism makes sense. It can explain this fact. Uh, aesthetic object relevance. Yep. Uh, so once again, theistic dispositional realism, like disposition, like natural dispositional realism, says the object is relevant. It has certain dispositional properties that cause a given subject, i.e., God, to have the, the necessary aesthetic experience and make that value judgment. Um, in terms of number six, it, it explains this perfectly, whereas natural dispositional realism doesn't. God is the grounding moral values. God is the grounding of aesthetic values. It makes sense you would design human beings to uh, reflect both and want to reflect both, and thus we would have this correlation. Um, and once again, 
are there going to be exceptions? I know this is going to be controversial for David, so that there are some issues here. Um, well, it's, it's not always the case that moral values and aesthetic values are in reality uh, correlated. So, well, does how does that fit in with theistic divine design uh, type explanation? And it doesn't. It's kind of at odds with that. And that's where the Christian would need to come in again with the fall. You know, sin has corrupted God's design, divine design plan and, and creation to some extent. And uh, this is why we have the remnants of that psychological association. Uh, but creation doesn't always reflect that, uh, that association. Um, and then finally, aesthetic non-deference. It perfectly explains this. Yeah, I, I have no desire to defer to any other human, whether they're an art expert or not, in terms of values. Um, but theistic dispositional realism gives the human being a reason to that they ought to defer to God's judgment in this place. Number one, because they were designed to reflect God's aesthetic experiences and judgment. So if they're not uh, following that God, they're not following the design plan, and therefore they're not acting in their best interests. And I, I think that theistic dispositional realism is a better explanation for this fact than just natural dispositional realism where we, we tend not to want to defer to the art experts. Um, so yeah, uh, David, uh, was that simple enough? Was that clear enough? Any clarification questions on the hypotheses and how I'm using the facts to say which ones are better than others? No to all of those questions. Okay. Um, but, so, so, I, so, so I succeeded, right? It, that wasn't an academic thing. That was simplistic. It, but it wasn't, it, well, no, it wasn't clear enough, but I don't know that it can be clear enough. Um, so that, that may be as clear as it can get. I'm not sure. But um, I, <clears throat> I, I think there's, there's some room for people to get a little lost. And so I want to maybe hone in on some of these areas and um, offer a clarification through discussion okay. uh, rather than clarification through lecture, because I know that when I, um, when I lecture, I have a certain picture of what I want to say and what I want to communicate in my mind that seldom holds up uh, in back and forth conversation. So when I teach a class, it's very different. Um, and I realize that the things that seemed so clear and obvious to me maybe aren't coming over so clear and obvious. So I, I'd like to move this into that place where uh, your game plan has contact with the enemy <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and see how, how well it holds up. Um, so, if I can respond uh, briefly to some of this, um, I'm I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna start actually with a, a question, and it it's going to sound like a fairly sarcastic and polemic type question, and it is only partly because I'm also responding to uh, something that you seem to. Uh, imply if not outright say in your uh, video. And so the question is, does God like or dislike abstract painting? Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I'm obviously, I obviously don't like it. Um, so I'm either correct or incorrect on that front. There is an answer. 
Um, and I, I don't know. Um, I, I would tend to think that I'm probably incorrect, I guess, um, if I were to, to lean on that uh, front. But yeah, I don't know uh, is my answer. Okay. So it's important that the people understand why I uh, ask such a off the wall question. It's because of this presumption, uh, in fact, this de direct declaration that uh, God's aesthetic uh, values should be our aesthetic values. Or if you want to say it the other way around, that probably makes more sense. Our aesthetic values should correspond with God's aesthetic values. But absent any way of knowing God's aesthetic values, that is a declaration without teeth. It is an unfunded mandate, one that cannot be completed, making the entire enterprise moot. Because we, we simply can't know whether we are moving our aesthetic values closer to God's or not, because we don't have access to God's aesthetic values. Even if you argue that we have some idea of some of what God might uh, find beautiful from special revelation. We, we simply have that that's too small of a set to make a statement that our, our life goal should be to achieve uh, <clears throat> valuing uh, aesthetically what God values. If we can't know what God values aesthetically, I don't even see the point of making the statement. Okay, so, so I would respond to that and say that, well, it's, it's not the case that we can't know. We can know. Um, just because there's an instance where I personally can't know. I, I'm so corrupted by sin that my aesthetic sense, faculty, you know, just like we have a moral conscience. Well, are you more corrupted than me? Uh, so, so let me finish my, my answer. Okay. To get that. So, um, so in terms of... Um, yeah, we, we have our moral conscience, which gives us direct access to God's moral values. And that's, we similarly have another faculty, which is our aesthetic sense. And you can come up with some fancy Greek word for what it, the faculty is called or something. And I've, I've seen that in literature, but, um, and this allows us, we're designed with this faculty to reflect God's thing. So in certain cases we can know, but there are instances for myself, for example, with abstract art where I'm so corrupted that I can't tell what, what is correct or not. So I, technically speaking, I shouldn't make a, an objective judgment that this is good or bad on, on specifically on abstract art. And it's similar with the moral sphere, right? Like my moral conscience provides me with knowledge about a lot of moral things. But when it comes to the issue of homosexuality outside of divine revelation, my moral conscience is corrupted by sin where I can't tell one way or the other if it's right or wrong in that instant. So, so the answer is just, just because there are certain individuals and certain instances where they might not tell, that doesn't mean we can't tell at all in any given aesthetic value, right? And indeed, there, there are certain people that will probably say that they're functioning properly. They can say, yes, it's correct. God does value abstract art just because you don't know it, Dale. That's your fault and your problem. You're, you're screwed up. Okay, I do... <clears throat> I don't understand how that works. So you can you you believe that, uh, and I'm <clears throat> for the moment just speaking about the things that are outside of the realm of 
direct special revelation, which is the vast majority of stuff. If a person disagrees with you and says, yeah, no, I'm, I'm more spiritually attuned than you, or I'm less broken than you. And I know uh, that abstract art is good. Therefore God uh, believes that abstract art is aesthetically beautiful. Uh, how do you verify that? How do you invalidate that? And, and how much beauty of, of God's sense of beauty do you need to reflect before you are um, acceptable? I mean, what if 90% of your idea of beauty is opposed to God's sense of beauty? Um, what if 90% of your idea of beauty was in line with God's sense of beauty? Is that enough? How do, how do you know if that's enough? What's enough? I mean, you can't, it seems like there is, there are zero ways of actually cashing any of this out in a way that is not uh, ad hoc. So um, <clears throat> A, I have no reason why I should believe that you or anyone else is in tune with God's sense of beauty. And B, when you say, well, where you disagree with God is just because you're broken. Well, how do I know your brokenness doesn't uh, make you more wrong than you think you are? Uh, I, I also um, have a sense of beauty and aesthetics. And, you know, speaking of the deferment problem, well, why should I defer to you? I don't have any proof that you are more tuned to God's beauty than I am. Uh, so you're, you're not really giving us a way of resolving that. And so once again, <clears throat> we have no way of knowing what God's opinion is of anything outside of special re revelation. And if you do have a way of resolving that, I would love to hear it. Otherwise, I don't know what good it is to say that we need to align our sense of uh, beauty with God's. So, so here would be my answer then. So number one, what percentage, the first thing you asked, uh, what percentage should we be? It should be 100%. Just like with more values, we should reflect God 100%. That is sufficient. Anything less than 100% reflection of God is bad to, to that percentage, right? We are designed to perfectly reflect God. God is the absolute standard of aesthetic goodness, just like he is with moral goodness. And if you're, if you're even 1% valuing badness, um, you know, like pretend I gave the example in my solo video of the serial killer. Pretend he's totally like God. He values everything aesthetically that God does to the same degree. But he's just, he's only 99% because he values chopped off heads on a string in his backyard. He thinks that's beautiful. That alone means he's corrupted. That's bad. That's insufficient. He's, he's going against his divine design. So I, I would say it's we are supposed to be 100%. And the fact that we're not 100% is bad. That, that's a consequence of the fall. Um, your, your second thing, um, your second point was, well, I, I don't want to defer to you. So this theistic dispositional realism hypothesis says, no, you, you've got to defer to God, right? This aesthetic non-deference says we have the tendency, it's a fact that we don't want to defer to other human beings. So yeah, I'm not asking you to look to to me or any other human being, um, I'm I'm asking you to look to to God. Um, okay, how do you do that? 
I was just about to, that's the third point. Okay, so, so how would we verify that? Um, so in my, in my solo video, I kept, I kept it simple. And I, I neglected to mention this aspect of, of naturalistic dispositional realism, which also applies, it's the same answer with theistic dispositional realism, right? So again, it's given the object has certain dispositional properties. They dispose us to have a certain experience or something like that. For, you know, they dispose God to have a certain experience. Human beings are designed to reflect God. So in that way, it would also be disposed to cause us to have this aesthetic experience. So Malcolm Budd is someone that I, his, his view was someone that I gave as the best. Like I, I really followed his understanding. He says, you know, you have to have this aesthetic experience of, of the work itself. And he links it to that object. Um, but he, he says, I disagree with him on this. He says that, well, that's the only way. Look, the, the only way for you to verify that uh, you're correct or not, that you're in tune with God or not, is for you to take, quote unquote, take in the work of art or the, the object of beauty and see, does it cause you to have this experience or not? Now, I, I think that that's incomplete. So P dispositional realists like David Hume, for example, he says, well, the, when when um, this causal conception takes place, you have this aesthetic experience and you, you make this judgment that it's aesthetically good. This manifests in a verifiable way. Uh, so his example was longevity. It, good works of art or beauty uh, uh, are preserved and seen as good throughout all of time and across all cultures. So home, his example was Homer's Iliad or something. This, this is seen as a great work of fiction, not just for the ancient Greeks, but for the Romans, not just for the ancient Romans, but in the East, in the West, the modern English people like the book and think it's good. So, so this is, he would say this disposition, it gains this verifiable dispositional property that where it's, it has longevity. Michael Sloat, he, he offered another dispositional property that's verifiable that he called unidirectionality. And what that is, is it just says, well, look, whenever people mature in their aesthetic refinement and that sort of thing, there, there's this, certain works have this unidirectionality. So examples he, he gives us, for example, um, cheap beer, right? No, when people mature, they never go from liking fine wine to preferring cheap beer. It's always, no, they start out with cheap beer and they go in one direction towards preferring fine wine. Same with music, for example. Maybe, you know, people uh, tend to start off liking one kind of music, and then as they mature, universally, unidirectionally, they go on to preferring the orchestra. Let me let me let me just cut you off there. I uh, I apologize. I, um, Did that answer the question? Yeah, well, I I hear the kind of answer it is, and it and it doesn't because if um, if any of that were true, if there was a way to validate uh, what whether something truly is beautiful or not, and whether God truly <clears throat> values that as beauty, you would be able to answer the question uh, definitively, uh, does God uh, like abstract paintings? But you cannot. And so with all of your knowledge uh, of this, with all of your academic research, with all of the papers, with all of the opinions, you still cannot answer that question. Uh, and so you're, you're going to have to do better than just citing examples of ways to figure it out. You're going to have to show practically how that works. And what you've shown 
to me is practically there is no way to know because you don't know. Well, well there would be if these if if a work has the property being unidirectional or the property of longevity, right? But I, I'm I'm personally you're right. I, I said there's no way for me, and that's because I, I I'm a little bit skeptical that these properties are the exemplification of right. I think that I think they're bullshit. Um, <laughs> so I I would say it's slightly different than you, and I I think I can show why every one of those uh, quote unquote properties are are that way. Let me jump into. Um, a direct rebuttal of some of these statements. I um... Can I say one last thing before you do? Um, okay. So yeah, I, I think that we mostly agree. I, I wouldn't say that these are BS. There might be something to these properties, but I'm skeptical of it. So so like Malcolm Budd, for me, the ultimate way is you just got to take in the work and do you uh, have this relevant aesthetic experience? And does that produce within you a property basic belief to make an evaluative judgment? This is beautiful. And if that's the case, that's the, the ultimate way that you know, yeah, I'm reflecting God. I've got this properly basic belief that this is beautiful and I've had the relevant aesthetic experience. So you've just got to take it in, take it in and see what happens. Okay. So let me let me just go ahead and start with your number one uh, and say as a direct rebuttal, there is no such thing as beauty. Uh, so uh, I had a couple of ways that I could have started my argument. Um, I decided to start with the question because I think that uh, really stabs at the heart of this, but so does this. <clears throat> and this is where I don't mind uh, angering both sides. And I will see if I can't form a consensus to uh, get closer to where I am. So I'll, I'll make the statement again. There is no such thing as beauty. Uh, your number one uh, aesthetic uh, correctness, conditions, values, and judgments can be correct, true, uh, or erroneous, false. I disagree. They cannot be because beauty is not a thing. There is no such thing as beauty. And so if you're thinking about like Platonic forms, is it Platonic forms or Aristotelian forms? I think it's Platonic forms. As, as if every description of a thing had its own idyllic form, this, this type of thinking is just uh, anachronistic uh, and, and wrongheaded. So uh, yes, we can talk about beauty as a description of the way we feel about something, but there is no thing called beauty that exists apart from our feelings about something. Uh, and so <clears throat> it, as, since it is not in fact a thing that exists, it cannot be right or wrong. It is a personal, emotional response to visual stimuli. And I'm using visual here on purpose um, to distinguish it from other types of stimuli. Um, but, it, and we have words, different words for different kinds of emotional responses. So for instance, when we, when we eat a piece of uh, lutefisk, you know, after we throw up, um, we don't describe that as beautiful or ugly. We we describe it, uh, it with different types of words. So there's no, it's no more a such thing as beauty than there's a such thing as delicious. There's no, there's no such thing 
as delicious. We can describe something that we taste that way, but that doesn't make it a thing that can be right or wrong. Um, and so that's that's the first objection uh, that I would have. And the entire argument that you make is based on the idea that beauty is a thing that can exist in a state of right or wrong. And uh, I think that you would uh, admit that if you were wrong about that, your entire premises uh, fall down. So we we agree at uh, disagree at this very fundamental level. Uh, you can't begin to build an argument based on beauty being a thing. Your second argument. Um, so let me just write this down. I okay. I All right. So I'm I'm going to try to try to get through this um, quickly. I'm having a little bit of trouble reading my screen, so I'm going to enlarge this a little bit. All right. Uh, aesthetic value. Uh, disagreements, uh, valuational, not just factual, aesthetic value disagreements. What are you what are you saying in number two? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, so the, it it's uh, a fact of our world that people have aesthetic value disagreements. Like that, you know, they have, they disagree with each other. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Uh, so obviously, I agree with that. Okay. Um, we, we definitely have aesthetic disagreements. Um, it, aesthetic refinement, development, uh, and education. Uh, this is one that I want to talk about just a little bit. Um, I disagree with this in, uh, completely. There, there is no such thing as aesthetic refinement. Uh, so I, I took uh, music in, in college for the time that I was there. I was a music major, but uh, I, I don't really want to talk that much about my college days. Um, but uh, let's say I, I went to um, uh, a, a prominent school with uh, uh, a, an exceptional uh, program of music and arts. So uh, I uh, naturally took uh, music appreciation courses. Uh, I took uh, some architectural uh, appreciation. Uh, so I <clears throat> had a, a number of in interests in people who could teach it. And one thing that a, a, a teacher of such a course cannot um, teach is why a thing is good. Uh, they can help you appreciate the elements of it. But if you ask them the question, okay, I, I, this is, I, I've listened to Wagner I've listened to this particular piece. Uh, I understand that uh, you think that this is very good. Why is it good? They do not have an answer for that. There is no answer for that. They can tell you why they like it. They can uh, explain the various elements of the piece, but they cannot tell you why it's good. Because it, it is not in and of itself good or bad. It is something that they enjoy because they appreciate the various elements of it. And so what you can do when it comes to art is you can take some art appreciation and you can learn what the experts see in it. You can learn what the practitioners of the art are doing. You can learn what they are trying to communicate with their art. And you can come to a greater appreciation of that art, but do not mistake a, pre, a, a greater appreciation for art 
as refinement. You are not being refined as if you're on a, a continuum going from bad to good. And, uh, it, you know, it gets better as um, you learn more. That is not true. Uh, you, can, you can know everything there is about the Mona Lisa and look at it and still think, yeah, I don't like it. Right. Your, your opinion is no more refined by your education than mine is unrefined for the lack of it. There, so there's, there's no such thing. I disagree with the idea of, of aesthetic refinement. We cannot refine our aesthetic sense. We can only uh, expand our understanding and appreciation of art. That is, those are different things and they should not be uh, conflated together. So for aesthetic objects, uh, relevance. Okay, I disagree with this, <laughs> that, um, that the object is relevant. It is not relevant. And so I will um, uh, channel a little bit of uh, Darren here. No, uh, uh, Dale, I am not going to uh, ask if you can uh, demonstrate your claim to be true. <laughs> that is not how I'm going to uh, uh, channel Darren. I'm going to channel Darren, though, in um, a thought experiment. Uh, just imagine yourself uh, a brain in the vat uh, type situation and with a nervous system and you're hooked up to inputs um, and you are given the experience uh, of viewing a beautiful mountain vista and valley to you, the experience would be exactly the same as if you were physically there. Because when you're physically there, you are still only stimulating those various uh, nerves and impulses uh, in, in your nervous system and brain. That is all that is happening. And so that can happen artificially. And I will just give a more common example that everybody on the planet experiences on a regular basis when you go to sleep at night and dream. Now, if you are fortunate enough to have occasionally good dreams and not bad ones, you have seen beautiful things in your dreams that are not real. There is no object attached to it. In fact, uh, you have conflated a lot of things in your memory. And so the thing that you see in your dream is not actually, does not actually uh, map onto anything in reality. It is, it is, uh, shall we say, a work of art. That work of art moves you in your dream the same way an actual object would move you. And so the idea that um, your, your aesthetic sensibility requires the object is simply on its face untrue. And, and we all have experience as to why that is untrue. Uh, moving on to number five, aesthetic agent. Uh, needed a person or a conscious subject uh, is necessary to ground aesthetic values judgments. Well, yes, granting some uh, other things. If you, um, I'm, you understand that I don't believe that there um, is a such thing as good or bad aesthetics, or that the object is not needed. But that said, I would agree to the extent that I can that a person, a mind, is needed to have an aesthetic judgment because there is nothing aesthetic about a mountain 
it is just a mountain. Uh, and because it is an emotional experience that someone has to have of seeing the mountain, you would not say that the mountain is beautiful unless there was someone to see the mountain as beautiful. Uh, but if, if the mountain existed without people there to see it, then it would make no sense to describe it aesthetically. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't own any aesthetic property of itself. Uh, so let me skip six. I'll come back to it. Uh, aesthetic non-deference. Uh, uh, yes, I'm not sure how this is a, a positive argument in your case, so I need to listen to you talk about that a little bit more, but I certainly agree that we uh, do not have to yield to anyone's opinion on a beauty because it's merely an opinion. The, the leap that you make, though, is that, but it's God's opinion, and we have to yield to God's opinion, and we've already talked about that a little bit. Now, number six, the way I heard you describe number six sounds like a love child between Nazism and the worst of Mormonism. Uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, that that line from uh, the Mormon uh, book, what's it called? At any rate, one of their uh, great uh, oldies, uh, white and delightsome, uh, because, you know, the, the white people, they were beautiful and the brown people were not. And, uh, you know, curse of ham, uh, God cursed this line uh, so that they would be uh, unattractive. And what made them unattractive? Well, they were dark skinned, you see. And so obviously someone dark skinned, not beautiful and therefore not trustworthy, not moral. They would always have this curse uh, upon them, uh, this is utterly absurd. And if you were citing um, quote-unquote scholarship that suggests otherwise, then I suggest you also cite, uh, you know, some of Hitler's scholars uh, too. This is this is um, a despicable idea that moral value is somehow connected to aesthetic beauty. And I, I would really like to think that you just haven't considered the implications of that in, uh, in that you would give that a rethink. Okay, all right. So, so yeah, so some good criticisms here. So I was happy to see we agree on uh, number seven, number five is, is good. Um, okay, so, so let me start. Your, your disagreement with number three um, I, I think that we can sort of skip that because that is really contingent on the fact that there are no, that you reject number one, that there are, if there are aesthetic correctness conditions, then there can be refinement. There's a standard for which we, we go and that sort of thing. So I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, but I would, I would also say that it, it, the, the last thing that you were saying before I went over the, uh, these seven things about uh, the unidirectionalism. Uh, you, you could also kind of put that in there. I, I don't believe in unidirectionalism at all. And once again, I, I could name several examples off the top of my head where it's simply not true. Um, you know, in once again, in, in college, um, we could go directly from music appreciation uh, to listening to 
Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, in fact, my my um, dean of uh, music at the school, who is also my personal instructor for uh, reasons not worth going into, uh, uh, confided to me that his his favorite music and his favorite group, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I, tr- I tried to understand this because he's this towering intellect on classical music. Um, and yet, when you want to listen to something that you enjoy, you listen to these folk singers who could barely carry a tune. Um, and so we had some very interesting conversations about that. But, but if, if you want to kind of classify folk music on one end and classical music on the other end, it is simply untrue that once one gets to the mountaintop that they don't go back in the other direction. Uh, it's not, it's not true. Gotcha. Okay. So, so yeah, I think your, your, obje- it hinges then, okay. Is your objections number one relevant? And you, your objection was, well, beauty is not a thing. So you, you've kind of conflated aesthetic correctness conditions entails uh, the position of atheistic aesthetic platonism, you know, that, the beauty is a thing that just exists in some platonic heaven, a platonic realm. And I just want to clarify that this aesthetic correctness condition do not depend on that being the case. It doesn't even depend on beauty being a thing in its own right. Um, for example, aesthetic subjectivism, pure subjectivism, uh, fulfills this criterion, right? It, it, it says there is a truth value. You're, you're either correct or not when you say this thing is beautiful. Uh, but that correctness or that truth value is relative to individuals. So it's true for you, but it's not true for me that that, that Picasso is ugly or Picasso is beautiful. Um, so, so I just wanted to make sure that you, you don't conflate aesthetic correctness conditions with beauty having to be some thing that exists in its own right, some kind of independent existent value. Like even Christians, as a theistic dispositional realist, I don't believe that, right? I argued against the aesthetic Platonism position. I think it's rubbish, just like atheistic moral Platonism is rubbish as well. So, so yeah, they, they, this one really mostly refutes um, uh, emotivism rather than advocates for some kind of Platonism. You, you don't have to. Note, it. That yeah, I was just, just going to say noted. I. Um... So I, I was uh, mistaking uh, that, and I, uh, I withdraw that portion of my objection. And uh, I will note that, uh, yes, what I, am, what I am defending is what uh, you are calling emotivism. And it's, it's not um, contingent on whether it, it's some kind of Platonism or not. Okay, all right, cool. Um... So that's so that's interesting. So you do go for emotivism. Yes, uh, because it's it's simply not it's it's not a thing. It's a description of a thing, and the thing that it describes is our immediate emotional state. Uh, so one of the one of the ways I might try to demonstrate this uh, would be. Um, you you see a painting and let's say it's something that you like it's it's a rose uh and it's it, it, amazing detail uh and it uses uh, a kind of uh redness and uh in its color that's unlike anything that you've seen and it's 
it takes your breath away. And then the painter comes along and says, you know, I uh, use human blood uh, to, to make that color. Now you see it and you are repulsed by it. Um, well, what's, what is the aesthetic truth though of that painting? Well, it doesn't have any aesthetic truth. It's, it's just how it makes you feel. So one moment, the aesthetic truth of it was that it was beautiful. In the next moment, the aesthetic truth of it is that it was repulsive. They're both the aesthetic truth. Yeah, well, so, so I, I think that the first thing to say is that this doesn't fit with uh, terminal, terminological, with the way we use aesthetic terms, and this kind of linguistic argument. It's, it's obvious that the vast majority of people are trying not just expressing their emotions when they make when they use aesthetic terms, but they are or evaluate or convey their evaluative judgments. They are making indicative statements. They're indicating uh, that something's true or false. So so that's a bit problematic if you're going to take the emotivist position. And not only that, the the emotivist position struggles with number two, which is something you said you fully agreed with. You you agreed with number two. So. I'm not sure how you would uh, take the emotivist position because they they would have if it's just emotion we have an emotional experience that's of of a valuable nature and then we express our emotions in our aesthetic judgments um, that would deny that value disagreements on in, in aesthetics would even be possible because how could you disagree with someone just expressing your emotions? See, to me, that actually sounds like a like a semantic argument. That's that's kind of meaningless because here's the thing: when people express their aesthetic value, uh, they are not, in fact, expressing a universal truth. They are simply telling you how they feel. And if if you hear it as them expressing a universal truth, the problem is with the way you hear it, not with what they're saying. Uh, if I say, uh, I, I want to show you the most beautiful uh, photograph in the world. It, it sounds, if you were, it, hear it in a wooden kind of way, like I am making a universal truth that this thing, that I think this thing is the most beautiful photograph in the world. And what I am really telling you is an emotional truth. This is what made me feel like it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But we, we say that all the time. The, yeah, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It, it's never the same thing twice. <laughs> we, we, because we're expressing an emotional truth for the moment, and we're sharing that moment. But if you come back to me next week and ask me what the most beautiful uh, picture is I've ever seen, if I, if, especially if my profession is look at a lot of pictures, it'd be something else. And it may be something that I reject as the most beautiful thing before. We're, we are not, in fact, making some kind of argumentation that this is beautiful. We are, we are trying to communicate to you in a human way that this makes us feel a certain way. This feels beautiful to us. That's what we're trying to tell you. And, and when you evaluate it as, as some kind of, once again, some kind of hard factual statement, you are missing the entire thing that's being communicated. Yeah, I, I would just fundamentally disagree with that. And I, I would just caution again, your, your words 
that there is a universal truth. Now you're right with respect to me because I take a theistic dispositional realism. So I am, I would argue that this truth value or correctness conditions are universal, but that's not necessarily the case, right? You're, you're, if you're going for a motivism, subjectivists would also say that there is a relative truth. I, my statements are have a truth value uh, and it's relative to me. So they, I think that most of us are trying to convey truths. Yes, but, but you, once again, you're, you're misunderstanding the truth that's being conveyed. It, the truth value that I am conveying when I say this is beautiful is the truth of how I feel about it. And I, I think you're having trouble understanding this okay. feeling part of it. It's the truth okay. of how I feel about it. I am telling you. Now, if I looked at something and I saw, found it uh, repulsive and I said it was beautiful, I would be lying uh, because there is a truth value here. And the truth value is I find it repulsive. But the truth value is not that it is repulsive. It wow. is that I feel it is, it is repulsive to me right now. In the same way that the truth value of you looking at a painting made of blood is true when you say it is beautiful, and it is also true when you say it's repulsive. The only difference is how you feel about it, though, at, gotcha. at any given moment. That's the truth being conveyed. Gotcha. Okay, so, so in that case, then, you, you would not go for the emotivist position, because the emotivist is error was basically just playing semantic, semantical games. You know, he's trying to say all of these judgment terms reduced down to just expression of emotion. What you're saying would be more kind of maybe like subjectivism. So what would be, what would ground our aesthetic values? It would be an ex, a proper aesthetic experience. What's the nature of that experience? You think it's an emotion of some type. So you're kind of like Clive Bell. You would say we have an aesthetic emotion or just any old, you know, any ordinary emotion that is caused by an object. That's the, the nature of the value. And then we convey our evaluational judgment on a subjective level. Hey, I, I feel this way, therefore it's true for me that this is beautiful or something like that. So that's actually a subjectivist. Fine, uh, you can call me a subjectivist. These, this, I, look, I have not <laughs> spent my life studying this jargon. I'll, I'll take your word for, for that. But I mean, I, I want you to, try to at least understand this idea because I feel like you dis dismiss it altogether. And what I am saying is just a part of, uh, of everyday human experience that everyone experiences. So have you ever had a, a food that you hate it that you like now or a food that you used to like that you hate now? Um, yeah, yes, there, there have been, uh, for, for the most part, I'm very, uh, picky eater kind of thing and I, I tend to stick with what I like but yes there have been occasions okay. where I didn't like something and then I liked it and vice versa okay so let me let me give you an example of mine you don't have to reveal anything of yours but I I grew up in soul food country uh and I grew up not liking it <laughs> uh, I I didn't like almost any part of what anyone would consider soul food um I'll just I'll just mention one of the things, and I will say that my parents were very good at this form of cooking. They were very good at a lot of forms of cooking. They actually took cooking in college, um, but uh, I did not like uh, turnip greens or collard greens or any kind of greens, which makes growing up as a black person in the South 
very difficult <laughs> if you don't if you don't like greens because there are a lot of greens <laughs> you go to someone's house you're gonna eat some greens um so uh i also didn't like cornbread so my my food choices are way down <laughs> uh peas uh no kind of peas <laughs> sorry <laughs> black eyed peas forget it um so my menu of choices and this and this is true i often only had you know maybe one thing uh in a feast of things or my parents would make something special for me because i knew i just they knew i, I wasn't gonna eat it <laughs> it didn't matter how hungry i was but somewhere along the line somewhere in my late 20s i want to say it was almost like a, a light switch i realized you know i think i like greens <laughs> and uh and uh the, the very next time after I had greens, I realized, oh, this is delicious. This is awesome. I can't believe I missed out on this my entire youth. Now, which one is true? Greens taste bad or greens taste good? Uh, and you can just substitute that for whatever food that you went from liking to disliking. Um, did my taste refine or did they decline? Um, how can you tell? Um, if I were, if, if there was some truth value, then there would be a truth that greens taste good or, or greens taste bad. Um, but I don't believe there is a truth value to it. The only truth value is how I feel about the taste of greens. And I have been honest my entire life about how I felt about the taste of greens, um, whether it was good or bad. So I don't, I don't see any room at all for someone to come along and say, no, there is actually a truth value to whether greens are good or bad. I don't know how you come up with that. So, so let me, now that I know that you're within the subjectivist position, so, so let me try to give this uh, example to see what, if it sparks within you both that there are aesthetic correctness conditions, and then I'll move on to your, your objection about object relevance. But, okay, so I gave the example in the show about a serial killer. Uh, let's pretend there's a serial killer who goes out and kills a bunch of people, chops off their heads, and then he hangs up those heads on a string in his backyard. He has this emotion. He has this aesthetic emotion that your emotional experience. Oh, that's amazing. That's so beautiful. And then he makes this, you know, the requisite cognitive judgment. These chopped off heads, that is beautiful. Um, now, is that serial killer correct or not? And I'm not just talking about, I know it, it's an example that shows sort of a correlation between moral value and aesthetic value, but we, we tend to say, no, that serial killer is incorrect. He's an error to feel good about seeing murdered, butchered heads on a string. And we're not just saying ethically he's wrong. There's this aesthetic value that is grotesque. It, it's sickening to just behold that. So I, I appreciate the uh example but i i used my blood tinted um paint as a counter example to that so i may not have made that clear um because i don't think you are just talking about aesthetics i think that you are smuggling in morality in with that question uh, because you know, as an observer, that it's, you know, whatever he's done with those heads, you know, maybe he's made a wreath out of them, you know, that it's a wreath full of severed heads. 
But if you didn't know it was a wreath full of severed heads uh, and you thought it was something else, you might think it was beautiful. There is no aesthetic truth to whether it is beautiful or not. It, there, it is only a matter of your knowledge of what it is. And so when you had no knowledge that it was human blood that made that amazing color that you just loved, um, it, was, it was beautiful to you. Is it a lie that it's beautiful because it's human blood? No, it's not a lie that it's beautiful. It's human blood. It was beautiful and it became not beautiful with your knowledge. So if you're saying, could there be something artistically done with severed heads to make them look aesthetically pleasing? The answer is absolutely yes, especially if you don't know they're severed heads. But you are importing your knowledge, your moral knowledge into this question. And so it poisons the well. I think that your question is therefore ill-formed because it requires a certain moral knowledge. And my question eliminates the moral knowledge, making it a truly aesthetic value. See, I, so I think that's fundamentally mistaken too. So in the first place, you, you are in the majority on this, this notion of trying to separate out aesthetic uh, values from other factual or ethical considerations. And I think that that's wrong. So, so for example, I, I linked to Monroe Beardsley, and he would agree fully with you. And, and a lot of philosophers of aesthetics, when they're talking about the nature of the aesthetic experience, they want to divorce it from all the other historical and moral considerations. I agree with, um, with uh, Malcolm Budd. I, I mentioned him a lot because I, I really, uh, there's things I disagree with him, like deeply using subject intersubjectivity he's an intersubjectivist for example so i would disagree with him but i think he is totally right where the experience themselves have to be related to the object so this gets into the object relevance and the experience has to be of the work itself and you can't divorce that from other factors part of the aesthetic value is its moral value or its historical value these factual properties of the object are relevant are necessarily and inherently a relevant part of the aesthetic value that we experience and that you can't divorce them out like you're trying to say or that a lot of philosophers of aesthetics try to do i think that that's a mistake so i so i i would reject that aspect and and i also think that this what you're saying kind of hints at the fact that well the properties my not factual knowledge of the properties of the object is relevant to my aesthetic value when i before I know that those are severed heads. It's not aesthetic value anymore. You're, you're not valuating aesthetic value anymore when you factor in other things. You, you said when you started this example that you're just talking about the aesthetics, but you show in the example that you're not just talking about the aesthetics. You are talking about something else. You are talking about moral repugnance. And if you just want to talk about aesthetics, you do have to, even if you believe that these things are connected somehow, you have to bring up an experiment that, uh, at least in, in a thought experiment kind of way, separates them out so that you're just talking about aesthetics. And what you're really telling me is you can't just talk about aesthetics. Okay. You're, yeah. And so I, I, I have proven that wrong with my example of the blood painting you can look at something that would otherwise be morally repulsive and find it aesthetically pleasing when all you know about it is that it's paint. But once you know more, then you're factoring in 
moral object uh, objection. And now you've t- you've poisoned the well. You're not talking about aesthetics. Everyone, by the way, this is a this is a real experience that a lot of people have had. So once again, I'm speaking in practical terms. I will uh, mention a dinner party uh, that I went to once. It was a very kind of um, upscale, um, you know, up, upper middle class. Who am I talking about? It was upper upper class in a suburban uh, area because I used to have friends in high places. <laughs> Not so much anymore. Um, but uh, I was invited to this party. It was a Thanksgiving uh, feast and it had, um, you know, there were lots of people, big house and um, people from other countries. And uh, it was very, it was, it was a fantastic, it was one of the best parties I've ever been to, frankly. Um, and there was uh, the spread included a lot of uh, exotic kind of dishes. And, you know, we knew what most of it was, but there are some things that we didn't know it was. And so, you know, People just politely tried it. And I was raving about it. This is delicious. This is fantastic. I love this. Uh, I don't know what it is, but everybody, you should try this. Um, and someone uh, told me it's brains. And I, um, I, put it, I put it down. I set my plate aside and uh, I just told them quite honestly, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't like it. I'm trying. Uh, I have the knowledge of what it is now, and I can't. I can't get it down. <laughs> it's it's suddenly not good to me at all. <laughs> and it was it was a a a formative experience for me because I've never went from uh, love to hate that fast on a thing based on one piece of information. Um, but the information is what. I was judging, not the aesthetic of what I was judging. And so when I was merely judging the aesthetic, it was good. But when I added other information to evaluate, then it was bad. And what made it bad? It wasn't the taste. It was the information. Right. So, so I, I think that's right. Like, I, I do think that the factual or not, I think that the non-aesthetic aspects of a work are, are relevant and they they my argument is that they can inherently impact upon our the aesthetic value of a work so in your example uh the aesthetic value decreased itself right it wasn't just that you had the same aesthetic value you still thought that was beautiful but you just had these factual thing these moral considerations that caused you you know what I mean? So you, you didn't just disavow it on moral terms, maintaining the same aesthetic thing. You didn't continue to see it as beautiful after you learned these moral facts about the painting or whatever it was. In your example, the aesthetic value itself was altered, was diminished upon learning of these new facts. So that's my point is that these other considerations impact on the aesthetic value itself. And it's not impacting the aesthetics. I, 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 I hold to that. It's it's kind of like uh, if you have a favorite Kevin Spacey movie. Uh, he's an artist that uh, I like a lot as far as his art. He's a he's a great actor. So I love me some Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey is also uh, an asshole. Um, and 
when I, so I was in the process of working through um, the Netflix series, um, what's it called? Uh, House of Cards. Uh, when when some of the revelations about Spacey's behavior came out. And at that moment, as much as I enjoyed the House of Cards series, I I couldn't finish watching it. Uh, which is which is my loss because I understand it was a really good series and um, it went on without Kevin Spacey. Um, and I might get back to it one day, but I couldn't I couldn't enjoy the series. And yet, if I watched a show at that point, it's, Kevin Spacey wouldn't have been a less great actor. But my judgment, my enjoyment of the show moved beyond the aesthetic. This is what happens when uh, Christians boycott certain things. They're not saying that this thing is bad, this music is bad, this movie is bad, this book is, is aesthetically bad. In fact, they are afraid that if their kids watch it and, and consume it, that they will enjoy it because they know it is, in fact, enjoyable. What they're worried about is the moral content of the thing. So even, even people on your side are able to separate out the idea of the aesthetics from the moral content of the thing. They know the aesthetics are powerful and, and the aesthetics remain powerful. Uh, some some um, people have tried to get me to uh, consider not eating meat, uh, in particular chicken. I'm gonna eat chicken, my friend. Uh, so you can tell me exactly what that chicken went through while I am noshing on chicken, and my only commentary would be, would you please pass that uh, drumstick there if you're not going to eat it? Okay, so I, I, have, a, I have a different um, moral response than they do. They can't eat it, but it tastes delicious to me, and the, the ethical issue is not a dilemma for me. I can eat it. Gotcha. So we can, we can, in fact, have a conversation if you were willing that separates the aesthetic from the other informational value uh, that's in there. But your argument is kind of dependent on that other informational value. And I think that's a bogus way to, uh, to conduct a, uh, an aesthetic evaluation. Okay, all right, cool. So, so here would be my final thing. So, so number one, for the audience, if you're interested in this debate, which I, I find fascinating, or this specific issue that David and I are going back and forth on, uh, read uh, in my uh, blog. I have sources from Beardsley who would who would advocate kind of what David's doing this this separation almost uh, type thing. And then George Dickey. It, it's called My Pres One. I, I presented on, but George Dickey gives a critical paper refuting this notion. And and also the Malcolm Bud paper that advocates my view. So I, so I think that the difference fundamental difference between Kevin Spacey, you know, the factual ethical information about his immorality and my example of the serial killer with the chopped off heads is there's an important difference here because it's it's we're talking about the morality relevant moral facts so the the morality of the work itself you know the work itself it contains immorality in it with those chopped off heads whereas Kevin Spacey's sexual sins aren't really connected in the same way or relevant to the work of art to his show or performance and that sort of thing. So there might be a difference there um, that needs to be teased out. Um, but yeah, I wanted to come to your, your next objection. 
trying to keep in the chat. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Um, so number four, aesthetic object relevance. So great. I was expecting you to reject this one. Um, and you didn't fail me, you did. So um, I would just say, uh, once again, you, you kind of hint, hinted yourself that upon learning of certain properties of the work, this can change the aesthetic value of the work, how we see the work and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I'll just first I'll open it up to a question there. Like why, why, why would that be the case? If the object is totally irrelevant, the object and its properties are totally irrelevant to our aesthetic experiences and, and that sort of thing, you, you must sort of see that it plays some kind of role. Is that correct? Uh, no. So you dream, I take it. Um, because if you don't dream, that would explain a lot. <laughs> you should see a doctor. It's not, it's not healthy not to dream. Um, so I imagine, I imagine you dream, uh, and uh, let's just talk bad dreams for a moment. Uh, I, because we've all had bad dreams. Uh, I'm not sure that everyone's had good dreams, but everyone's had bad dreams because fear is a, a powerful motivator, uh, when we close our eyes. Uh, so there, there are lots of both irrational and rational fears running around in our subconscious and those get, um, personified, um, in, in our dreams. So uh, have you ever had a dream that felt so real, so bad uh, that, you know, you woke for a start, uh, you thought for sure you're about to die or be tortured or some such. Uh, I have many times. Yeah. Um, that this experience is disconnected to an object. There, there are zero objects. In this experience and yet you wake up in cold sweats um and your your body is going through the motion i mean you're you're probably a few heartbeats away from a heart attack if it kept going uh dreams can kill uh the 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 right person in the right circumstances because they are so real uh so if if you can have that experience and recognize the how real that experience is because it's firing all of your 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 nerves. Um, then I'm not sure how you can continue with the argument uh, uh, number four. Gotcha. Okay, so so this is great. Actually, I like the fact that you use this dream world or the matrix example. I think it's even more clear than the destructive. So I, I quoted in my solo show, uh, Dr. Philip Callan's work and on what he calls the destruction argument, where we, you know, we have this art, artistic or aesthetic object and, you know, all, everyone judges it's beautiful. They have all the, all the right stuff and experiences and judgments about it. Um, but then all of a sudden ISIS comes in and destroys this beautiful temple or something. The, the object is gone. It no longer exists and you'll never get it back. Um, but then let's say we can take a drug that will make us hallucinate this thing. So in the same vein, uh, an even better example is, is David's dream world or the matrix. Let's pretend we're looking at this same temple. We have the option of plugging into the matrix and seeing, oh, the temple is restored. Uh, you know, all of its properties are seemingly the exact same as the original object and that sort of thing. Um, and the argument says that, well, is, is that enough? and I think successfully argues it's not. There's, there's a diminishment of aesthetic value when we're not having the original real object. And 
that's just displayed and you know people people most people i think have this general tendency to see a diminishment of the value of living in a dream world or or the matrix or something compared to uh living in the real world there is no they don't i know that, I know that you don't but no 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 they don't nobody does no. what i think you're mistaken you're mistaking two states in your waking state your dreams seem frivolous and obvious in your dreaming state anything else seems frivolous and obvious it depends on which state you're in because most of the time in your dream state you're not aware that you're dreaming you're just aware that you're living uh and so it's it only becomes a point of comparison when you're in the other state um let me let me put together though another real world example for you because once again i'm not uh, entirely unfamiliar with the world of art the in most cases when you go to a museum and you look at that valuable piece of art the mona lisa the you know whatever whatever the art is you're looking at you're not looking at the real thing i say in most cases in many cases when it, when an object is that valuable it isn't on display <laughs> it is it is in fact a fake a good fake commissioned by the museum because they don't want this valuable priceless piece out there where it can just be uh touched with you know frito's fingers uh in ruined and stolen uh in you know what have you it's it's not in fact the real thing and yet the emotions people have of it are as if it were the real thing but in a sense the object doesn't exist not the object that they think it is anyway it's a different object it doesn't it doesn't actually exist uh by the way you're defining the object uh so yeah i let me give you another example in real world uh, so that we don't have to talk about the matrix love the matrix by the way um but we can do this in the real world uh i've i've been to museums or uh, in art art demonstrations and things but my vision isn't good and i can't necessarily get as close to some of the art that i would like to get close to and see i have to get pretty close to really appreciate it and take it in but if i can go home and look at a facsimile of that thing on my high resolution big ass display on my desk uh and zoom in and see that i can have a much more um uh a stronger aesthetic sense of of what i'm seeing even though the object that i'm seeing doesn't technically exist that i can go on all day with examples like this yeah so so i i think that that's not true so so in the first place with the replicas yeah we we are valuing a different object right we're, we're valuing the replica itself kind of thing but even in terms of the original versus replica distinction there there it does there is once the person becomes aware of this fact there does seem to be a diminished aesthetic value diminishment the original is better than uh and creates more value than the replica and this seems to be a common sentiment and it, it's it's the majority view in the not just the philosophy of aesthetics but in the art world i mean there's tons of forgeries and stuff like that we don't ascribe the same value to that to those works that's why an original is worth millions of dollars or the other one's like 20 bucks. Or something. But you'd only you'd have to know it's a forgery. You're bringing in the knowledge of the thing and you're not talking about aesthetics anymore. So yes, there are ways to uh, 
decipher the difference between the real thing and a forgery. And those are not skills that I have. And I can't even speak intelligently about uh, those skills, but I know they exist. There, there are ways to make that determination. But if a per when a person sees the forgery, by, by and large, they don't know the difference between the forgery and the real thing. And they see it and informationally, they think it's the real thing. Aesthetically, they think it's beautiful. They're happy. They're happy. And the only time they would be unhappy is if someone came along and showed them that it was a forgery. So yeah. once again, we're not talking about aesthetics anymore, though. We're talking about uh, some added piece of knowledge. Now they've been duped. That's a different thing that, that carries a, a negative emotion that they will feel every time they look at it. Uh, but you're you're kind of describing that as an aesthetic. No, the only aesthetic that matters is the aesthetic they that they genuinely felt when they saw it. it it's well, not the it's not the thing that they felt when they knew other information about it. Yeah, so so we're kind of going back to what we were discussing. Apologies, uh, but no, no, I mean no, that's it's, that's, it's that's kind of where your example took me though. Um, yeah, no, it's it's good because it, it's highlighting. Look, there's this fundamental difference where I think that the non-aesthetic the relevant non-aesthetic factors to a given work of art or an object of beauty are in fact relevant and impact upon the aesthetic value proper they, it goes up or down depending on these facts whereas again you're you divorce them no the, these facts are totally irrelevant you're totally ignorant of the fact that this is a replica and you think it's original you'll get this this value, but it's it's based on incomplete, incorrect information, and therefore I think there is a diminishment of the aesthetic value itself. Even um, if even if that's true, though, I I don't see how that helps your ultimate argument. You know, it's um, there'll be a lot of examples as we talk about this. So, um, you know, you see a beautiful woman, and you think in a non lust lusting way that that is an extremely beautiful woman. Look, look at that uh, perfect skin, those cheekbones. Uh, it's amazing. But then you find out uh, that she has just recently had cosmetic surgery and that she's got about three inches of makeup uh, on her face to make her look that way. Is she still beautiful? Not to me. Not to me. But what that suggests uh, you, you know, setting aside the fact that, yes, we've got some information now that changes uh, how I feel about that. That seems to more support my uh, argument than yours, uh, that there is, in fact, no such thing as aesthetic truth. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. So so one thing impact for bringing back to my theistic dispositional realism, how would they interact with this object relevance? Basically, what I would be arguing is, could it be possible for God without in a in an uncreated world, God exists alone, right? Without creation, without creating a sunset, without creating the object, could he have the same aesthetic valuable experience without those objects? And I, I would argue no, because that, you know, to be consistent with my argument that aesthetic value is linked to to the objects themselves. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now this is a new thing. So I want to make sure I understand it. Um you did you just say that God could not appreciate the aesthetics of a sunset without creating a sunset yeah not to the same degree so so his mind is 
is insufficient to create the same emotion in him as if he then externalizes it uh, and looks at it from an external point of view. Yeah, you're exactly. you're. This is what you want to go with because yeah, it's experience, okay. experiential knowledge and it, it, phenomenology. Phenomenology is uh, an important aspect. You realize you don't have to. You don't have to go here, though. I mean, you're talking about God as a Christian. I mean, you said to be consistent, but honestly, yeah. I would not beat you up over this. I think I think this is almost inconsistent. What you're doing, if as a Christian, I think you're very safe to argue. Uh, that God holds all reality in his mind. It, it was reality before he externalized it. He doesn't have to, he's not limited to flesh and blood observations like we are. Our, arguably, our observations are much more limited than what, what God's knowledge is in his mind. But you're, no. you're almost saying that God has to have this physical no, no, no. sensation of it this externalized physical station sensation to appreciate his thought and i i don't understand how that would be consistent with an all-powerful god so so yes it, it it i'm saying that the experience the experience of the object itself um is a necessary component that adds value aesthetic value to things so if you don't have the experience of the object uh, the aesthetic value of just picturing it in your mind or, or remembering it is not as high. And that applies to God as well. Things that exist in potential form. So, so Christians make this argument all the time in terms of, of an argument for the Trinity, for example. They'll, they'll say that actualized love is greater than just potential love or something like that. And I, I'm kind of making a similar argument here. Yeah, actually. but I think your, your argument is ignoring biology. The reason... Uh, that a human memory is not equal to the real thing, which I would acknowledge, by the way, uh, our memories alone, unaided by some uh, other, uh, as, as of now, not real technology, is insufficient to recreate the thing that we saw or felt. Uh, it's, it's not the same thing. It's not that we can't recreate in something in our mind that's just as powerful, but we can't recreate that exact thing because of in the insufficiency of our memory. But God doesn't have a memory insufficiency problem. He knows every, every atom, every subatomic particle, uh, both the position uh, and spin of that particle. He knows every one of them that makes up the, the object that he would instantiate. There is no data loss at all. And so I, I don't understand your argument that God would need to externalize this because he, he has no diminishment in his mind. If, if I understand the Christian God uh, correctly and what Christians say about his mind, yes. uh, he's not like a human. We do have all kinds of diminishments in our mind. It's, it's so, so, val so evaluating judgments are grounded in God's mind, right? It's a belief. But the values themselves be, is an experience. Uh, that's not necessarily something to do with God's mind. And if, even if he has full full complete knowledge of an object mentally 
there's still an experiential aspect, a phenomenological aspect that's missing if it's not an actualized object, if it's just potential in God's God's mind. So it's and there's that there's an experiential aesthetic value. So so God doesn't understand the human sex drive. Yeah, he he doesn't have an experiential knowledge of the human sex drive at all. Remember, we discussed this in our show on the incarnation in Trinity, for example. Yeah, I think you're describing a God that a lot of Christians would not and do not. Um, they would describe a God as knowing everything about us, and he doesn't have to be us uh, and experience everything to to understand it fully. Yeah, that's um, and incoherent. It's, it's logically impossible for that to be true. Well, I think it's logically impossible. I, I, I would agree with you there, but then again, I don't think much of your God. But those who do think of your God, I mean, you, you are lowering your God to the level of what I think of him. And I find that uncomfortable. I'm trying to, I'm trying to steal man you a little bit and yeah, steer you away from that. That are, are worried about this. Think of the question, does God know experientially? Uh, how, does he have knowledge by acquaintance of what it's like uh, to be Dale Glover? That would make him a schizo, uh, a multiple personality person. Does God have experiential <laughs> knowledge of what it's of what it's like to tell a lie or to sin? No, I'm sorry. No, it's experiential. You don't, you, you don't mean to say that. I just I stop. Do. Do, I commenters, do. stop your commenting right now, okay? Uh, what you said, Dale, was that essentially, if God knew what it was like to be you, He'd have to be schizophrenic, yeah. uh, implying that. You are schizophrenic. And so, no, no, I mean, no. He, he would know what he would know. They heard you say it, Dale. I'm just trying to head it off, all right? The, okay. the first 15 comments on this show, just stop it. Just I didn't even catch on. Okay, yeah, I can see being taken that way. But no, because he would know he would know he is Dale and he would know he is God. And that's two multiple personalities. That can't be true. Or think of it this way. Does God know what it's experientially? Does he know what it's like to be a sinner? Of course, no Christian would say, no, God never sins. He has no experience of sinning like human beings do. I, I, and he also has no experience of temptation. He has no experience of what it's like to live in our skin in the environment have, that he created for us. Uh, and so he has no right to judge us. Well, he does have experience of temptation through Jesus. I mean, Not real temptation. Honestly, Satan, please come tempt me uh, with uh, taking over the world. I, I, I'd love that temptation. Bring it. No, I get I get actual real temptations, Dale. Um, you have real temptations, too. In my, my, I know that some Christians... Come on. Superman, but that's just not what the Bible says. He was really tempted in every single way. It never lost it, uh, because God doesn't know what it's like to be in my skin. Uh, he doesn't know what it's like to be in your skin. He doesn't know what it's like, for instance, to be mentally ill. Uh, he doesn't know what it's like to be uh, clinically depressed. Uh, he has no right to fiddle with us since he doesn't know any of this. This is the, this is the logical follow-on to your position. I'm happy that you're making it because it makes me look good and makes your God look like the ass that I think he is. But it's not the argument that you would want to make as a Christian. Well, it's, it's I, I seriously hope that some Christians comment on this and and just be honest for Pete's sake. Um, well, it's 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 getting into we we discussed it. we're a little bit off topic, but like just we the, are we are I I acknowledge that 
<laughs> just to respond to this, this is remember we in the show on the Trinity, me, you, and Andrew. I I gave this example that just refutes this notion that God can't judge us unless He knows He has experiential or knowledge by acquaintance of sin. He can't judge sin. And I said, well, that's like a human judge saying, well, I can't judge this rapist. I've never raped a girl. I've no knowledge of what that's like, so I can't pronounce you guilty. I, you know like until i've raped someone or, or raped her or something like that then i'll understand then i can judge you. no that's ridiculous propositional knowledge is a sufficient basis to provide judgment sure uh, so let's let's ignore number seven i want to hear you respond to my response to number six uh because not, this is i love this one yeah. this is where i want you to have some redemption i really do because honestly i think the first 15 comments will be about this one and uh so I, you have heard my objection here, and so I would like you to set the record straight. Yeah, I had a great response, but I just wrote notes, so I'm forgetting. I had like a witty line to refute this, but so I, I was, I, I guess, just trying to remember anything. Um, it, it's you're getting confused here, right? So, so it's true that uh, Nazis might Nazis would judge. Oh well, uh, whiteness is beautiful, blackness is ugly. Uh, and therefore, you know, associate that with moral value. But that that's just a mistake, right? We have these aesthetic correctness conditions, according to, to me. I know you dispute that, but um, it, I can just easily say, no, that it's an incorrect judgment um, to value whiteness of skin versus blackness of skin. Both are aesthetically valuable and, and beautiful. Okay, what it, let's, let's just jump straight to the uh, straight to something, though. That's not semantic. Uh, elephantism. What? What is that? What is the, the disease that the elephant man had? Do you remember the elephant man? Did you ever see that? Um, Hollywood did a great job at uh, the portrayal. It was grotesque. I couldn't watch. Uh, and to this day, I have trouble uh, looking at someone with a horrendous bodily disfigurement. Uh, it's just it's it does not compute for me. It's like one of those abstract paintings where you know the eyes are where the cheeks should be or something like that i i um it's it's very challenging for me and i don't mind admitting that um would you say that the elephant man was aesthetically beautiful no i wouldn't okay so would you associate uh that someone who had that kind of disfigurement would therefore uh there would be some kind of moral implication um since they are not beautiful, they also couldn't be completely moral. Uh, so, so no, in terms of well, yes. So in a in an indirect Ouch. way, because because um, it's evidence of the fall, and everyone who if he wasn't a sinner, he wouldn't have. This is going to sound wrong. So I'm not giving an, uh, a sufficient condition that oh you're a sinner you'll you'll look like that as though he's worse than us. I'm saying in general, sin has infected every single human being. Okay, so what that, about someone that, who looks like Brad Pitt standing next to someone who looks like the elephant man? Can you make any uh, moral judgment that one is more trustworthy than the other? No. And but it's, I'm just saying, so how, how would I define moral and aesthetic beauty? How it, it's, it's aesthetic beauty, uh, in terms of the human appearance or something like that is conformity to God's design plan, right? So the reason Elephant Man is ugly, aesthetically ugly in his appearance, is he's diseased. He's, he's got this problem as a result of sin. 
through no moral fault of his own. Um, it's just he was born that way. But um, because of the curse of sin, creation is screwed up. So some people luck out, others don't in terms of their aesthetic experience. And other people people um, divert from God's design plan, designed plan to varying degrees, right? Some people, some people are affected differently. Their moral conscience, Brad Pitt's moral conscience may be hideous and ugly compared to Elephant Man, who, who's physically ugly, but is, is a golden, you know, is a good, relatively good guy uh, and beautiful on the inside in terms of his moral character and stuff like that. So different, sin affects people differently. There are different effects that it takes. As it okay, is. so I, ju I just want to be clear. I, and I, I feel like, because what you said and what you argued when you initially got here, is slightly different than what you seem to be saying now. Is there any way to judge moral content by aesthetic features? Okay. okay is, so is there any connection between those two things? Uh, because you were making the case that we, that, that there is great research that, um, you know, we, uh, that that we trust people who are we trust pretty people basically, uh, and we don't trust ugly people. And you were you were it seemed like you were backing that idea. So so yes, I, I okay. So let me state it this way. So my fact here doesn't necessarily speak about the ontology of the situation, but whether it's true that moral values are in reality correlated to aesthetic value. I was just giving the psychological fact that for human beings, for, for whatever reason, we have this association. Okay, if, it, if you're not saying it's ontologically true, then I don't see the value of the observation at all. Well, well let me get there. Um, okay, so we have this psychological fact, and then we ask, okay, well, what explains it? And my theistic dispositional realism hypothesis would say, what explains that is because it is in fact ontological it, god designed the universe and designed human minds to to core to for, for moral values and aesthetic values to be correlated that's why we have beautiful sunsets and oh it's so amazing it's good uh, and stuff like that um but due to sin there there are obvious exceptions like you just gave the example of comparing elephant man and brad pitt and we're assuming brad pitt's uh, an, an arsehole um, and that elephant man is a good guy, morally good guy or something like that. So there's obvious counterexamples that it becomes problematic because there, there's corruption um, in, through the, the fall and that sort of thing. So I, I have, we have to admit that there are these counterexamples. I think that this is probably, when it comes to the ontological question, this is the most problematic fact for the theistic hypothesis kind of thing but I, I think the christian has the fears when discussing ontological and remember my my fact is only stating a psychological human psychological fact or correlation here it's not necessarily saying that there is an ontological thing just because my the hypothesis i think is the best does make that additional ontological correlation did that make sense or am i just I don't know it, it really it really sounds like a dance uh with steps that i can't fully follow 
it sounds like you want to give it credence, but you want to um, be cautious about giving it credence. And what, so let me start here. Oh, sorry, I interrupted. Well, so let me just ask you uh, a question once again, by way of uh, analogy or example, if you've got two president uh, candidates, let's just say they're both uh, men here, um, and you don't know anything about them, but you do know that you want to vote. <clears throat> and so uh, would it be uh, a rational thing in any way to vote for the one that uh, has the highest aesthetic qualities? No. So, so no. So yeah, the, the answer is no. And okay, well, well, let me maybe make my point, point this way. So, so in terms of my aesthetic fact, would you agree just that it's a psychological fact? Human uh, psychology and cognitive science have proven that psychologically speaking, human beings associate moral value with aesthetic, for better or worse. We there is a tendency. No. No. Okay. No, I don't. I don't. So when I say I wouldn't agree, I'm not saying I disagree. I'm saying that I don't know enough about it to agree with that statement. It seems very broad, very far reaching. Um, and I would hesitate to trust uh, the research as if it has given a definitive answer. So for instance, uh, I think it's, I think it's cultural in a, in a lot of cases in American culture, for instance, as, as I grew up and live and, ex and exist and experience the culture. Uh, I think that someone who looks too good uh, is, I, I'm suspicious of that person. They, they, they seem fraudulent. Um, they, they are using makeup and uh, tricks to make themselves look good. They uh, have abused their good looks to get to the position that they are in. People from where I come from don't particularly trust the good looking person. That's a, that's a person that we're extremely suspicious of. Um, so I don't know that it is the case that, um, you know, hum humankind uh, in the modern world uses aesthetics as a factor. Now, I do know, uh, statistically speaking, that women tend to be better salespeople than men. Um, and at least one part of that is, um, uh, is appearance. But it's true even in phone sales when, when it's all over the phone and they're, they're, the only thing you've got is a voice. Uh, it, that still tends to be true. And so it makes me think that there's something else going on besides aesthetics. Um, and I can also tell you, as someone who spent many years of their life in sales, both on-prem and the phone, uh, I did not need to be the best looking guy in the room or the best sounding guy in the room to have the highest sales. And some of the people that you would think would be the most charismatic and uh, the, the people magnets, uh, they couldn't they couldn't sell to save their lives. And so I don't, I just don't have enough experiential data to buy into the correlation that, that you're making here. It seems, it seems off to me, but I'm a person with the experience of one. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so I would agree with you that outside features, I mean, I, I answered no to those two presidential candidates myself. And I'm basing this on the fact that I know because I, through through evidence and experience and stuff like that, that 
the beautiful person isn't always the good person or something like that. So we, we have this counter evidence, but the fact remains, it's been scientifically proven, we have this psychological tendency and it, it is innate. So if, if people wanna look up these correlations in, in psychology and cognitive science, it's in my source, Argument from Beauty, 311 page book. And if you go to page 168 of 311, or in terms of the document, it's page 152, uh, it cites all these studies. So for example, one study, recent research on facial beauty suggests that perception of beauty is innate. They study babies. They have no, no, no other knowledge and that sort of thing. It's, it's innate and it's universal across race and culture that they prefer beautiful faces to quote unquote ugly faces or unattractive individuals. Um, I, I just want to I just want to just try to let people know I, I I'll let you finish your thought but I'm not disputing the research in that I'm saying I think it's wrong I am simply saying I don't necessarily buy that it's right either so there is a distinction uh, so don't don't come at me on that but I would also say that uh, I have a bias uh, and I want to I want to make that clear. Uh, as you finish up too. Uh, and my bias is very simple. It, it sounds like exactly the same kind of research that Hitler did and that every regime did that wanted to verify, validate their racism. This is, this, these are exactly the kinds of things that they would cite. This is exactly the kind of research that they would commission to, to justify their, um, putting people that they considered less attractive in a uh, lower position. And so I am always skeptical uh, when I see research like this. So it could be true, but I would say that this is, the, this is one of the great tools of racists, and therefore uh, we have every reason to suspect it. Awesome. So, so let me just back you up then on that, right? So, so obviously as Christians, despite the this, this psychological facts, right? There is that ontological question. I don't care, who cares what this psychology is in terms of actually using that to, to value. People, as Christians, everyone, elephant man was physic, is physically ugly. He, he deviates physically from the divine design plan for the human body um, to a degree that we say, we say is ugly, right? Um, that doesn't mean that he's ugly as a person or that he is not valued as an image bearer of God. The, those properties are just accidental features. They're, they're not a part of the essence whereby every human being by essence is valuable as an image bearer of God, uh, regardless of whether they're physically beautiful or, or not or something like that. So we have to, that will combat this, uh, you know, devaluing human beings as non-human beings or something like that. That's stupid. Just because someone's physically ugly, or fat or whatever it is, they're still human beings. Um, and you need to treat them accordingly. Uh, but I don't think we need to lie and say, oh, well, this guy is beautiful, physically beautiful when he's not. He's obviously got a disease and abnormalities that make him not physically attractive or beautiful in that way. And also with the race, with the racism point that this is just a, uh, a point where the Nazis were stupid. They, they used scientific research to justify saying that one race is aesthetically valuable, other races are not aesthetically valuable, and that's just a mistake. I, I see no reason why one skin color should be considered beautiful, whereas another shouldn't. So that's where the I would bring in aesthetic correctness conditions and say that 
sorry, you're, you're just incorrect if you think that skin color is, is a property of someone that ascribes aesthetic, more aesthetic value compared to other skin colors. So let's, same, uh, okay. Well, I was just going to say, let's, let's transition to your aesthetic correctness conditions, because I, this is a... Oh, I thought we already did. Oh, did you? Yeah. Say, okay, then I may, then I feel like I've missed something because what I'm expecting when you talk about the aesthetic, aesthetic correctness condition uh, is specific criteria that one can look at to say, this is what good is oh, and um, this is what bad is. Gotcha. All right, we can, can I, because I just on the moral value and aesthetic value there. Sure. So I, I mentioned that this fact in this table um, is about the psychological fact. But given that I take a theistic dispositional hypothesis, then that hypothesis also uh, raises the ontological issue. Well, is it true? Did God actually design the universe for moral people, for moral moral values and aesthetic values to be correlated in that sort of thing. And that's where we get into these issues of, well, there's people, there's ugly people that are uh, morally beautiful and there's vice versa. Or what about reality itself? Um, where, you know, is it true that God created sunsets? What, what, what is the moral value of a sunset or something like that? So that there's that issue ontologically speaking that would need to be addressed um, if you're taking a divine design hypothesis or something so okay yeah so, so i i would love to talk about the theology of that because i'm a theological nerd but um correct. i've got a feeling that time just won't permit us to get into that maybe a little bit of a side issue maybe maybe it's something that i can get into on the board if i have time this week um so i but i, I think this discussion does uh, is one of the key points so if you don't call it a the aesthetic uh correctness condition maybe you have another name for it but it's you know if you're talking a lot about uh, aesthetics and whether it's whether it's true or false that a thing uh is beautiful or not but in order to say that a thing is um beautiful you would have to define beautiful um and then based on a definition we can look at that criteria and then we can see how well a thing matches with that criteria. But without criteria, it's just a subjective statement uh, that's meaningless. So I, I am assuming that you have some kind of criteria uh, that, that defines beauty in a way that one can then evaluate. I, I do, um, you're not gonna like it. So I've given it before. So, so in the first place, how, how would others like, you know, I mentioned David Hume has his criteria of longevity across time. Yeah, across I don't, I don't care about um, Hume. Um, know, like he's wrong. Unidirectionality and that sort of thing. So, so sure. what is mine? So the, what is the, mine? Not, the Nazi uh, symbol has uh, timeless elements to it. Uh, pentagrams have timeless elements uh, to them. It's, it's an absurdist um, definition. Things that, things that have longevity are therefore beautiful is, is ridiculous. No one should believe that. Next. Okay, uh, and then Michael Sloat's unidirectionality. Remember? Uh, yeah, abs absurd. Once, once again, um, we are if if the Christian is correct, um, then the argument is that 
uh, as evil people, we just get more evil, not less evil, the longer we live. Uh, so uh, without without God, uh, you know, we would we would just fall deeper into sin, and therefore we should suspect our tastes when they go in a certain direction too. We should. There's no reason we should believe that going from beer to quote unquote fine wine is an improvement. We're sinners in every other part of our life is a devolution. So I'm not entirely sure why you would say our aesthetic values improve. It's a non-starter. Okay. All right, cool. So what are my criteria then? What do I think? And very vague and general. So it's what defines beauty? What, how do we know an object is beautiful? What, by what criteria? Well, the criteria is that object has the dispositional property of causing God uh, to have the relevant aesthetic experience, valuable experience, and to make the cognitive judgment that object is beautiful. That's what defines beauty versus ugly or whatever other aesthetic term you use. So it's, it's something that it's basically whatever God thinks is beautiful. Yes, and, and in a nutshell, yes. And then we as human beings are designed by God according to the theistic dispositional realist to reflect God's experiences and valuable experiences or disvaluable experiences. And so judgment. we're image bearers of God. And so what God finds beautiful, we should find beautiful because we bear his image. So, so yeah, so, so long as we are functioning properly, according to that divine design plan, you can know that you're functioning properly. If you're, if you're, but because if you're, we don't function properly, we don't know necessarily when we are bearing God's image properly. And so sometimes we do, we are functioning properly, right? So that gets into that epistemology where are our faculties functioning properly or not? Sometimes they are, and we know that they are. Like my knowledge that one plus one equals two is exactly reflecting God. I have a 100% degree warranted true belief in that instance. So you, you can't just point to, well, because of the fall, there are some instances where we don't have warranted true beliefs and we, therefore we don't know that we're reflecting God to say that in all cases, we can't know that we're reflecting God. Okay. Um, I think the, I think the one plus one example is a bad one because it, you, you think that we know it by intuition or something, as opposed to it being a mathematic truth. That, that we can that we can observe um and i and it's also something on which nobody disagrees so it's it's really hard to use that as an example of we're reflecting god's uh truth there the, in this conversation a better example would be um you believe that um that uh uh the impressionistic what is the uh the art form, the the, the abstract <laughs> art. I don't know. Abstract art. <laughs> okay. You believe that abstract art is bad, and another Christian, just like you, just as faithful, a, a real seeker, believes that abstract art is good. That's that's the example. Um, neither of you is in a position to know which of the other is right. And you, and what's more, neither of you will ever be in a position to know which of the other is right. Well, I, I don't know what the last part, but um, I, I'm in a position to know 
that I don't have a warranted true belief. Therefore, my faculties are failing to function and I shouldn't rely on them to make uh, an objective statement that aesthetic uh, uh, abstract art is ugly or bad. Um, I, I wouldn't make uh, a statement that, yes, this there are objective, that I'm correct, that abstract art is bad. Is there any art in the real world? And I look, art is one of those things where even when I studied in school, I didn't care about it that much uh, it, for for reasons. But uh, I do like food. Uh, so I can talk about food. And you uh, did tell me uh, that your view is more of an aesthetic view, more than uh, not just a quote unquote beauty view. And so we should be able to transition to food, which is something I feel, uh, feel much more comfortable talking about. Um, I hate olives, all olives. I've had lots of olives, very exotic olives, hate them all. Um, so to me, if I were using my, uh, my sense of rightness as some kind of objective guide to truth, I would have to say that olives objectively taste bad. But the problem is God made olives if you're a Christian. So if you're a Christian who happens to hate olives, you still have to contend with the fact that God made olives, and very likely uh, when he made them, they tasted pretty much the way they taste now. Um, so if you don't like them, you're going to have to come to come to some kind of coming to Jesus moment, <laughs> because he probably he probably was an olive eater, considering where he came from. Came from. Um you are going to have to just say olives are good for some ad hoc reason. So, so this is a good, the issue of uh, food taste is an interesting one because it's, so reality is mixed, right? Um, so in this case, I, I think that God's design is subjective, subjectivist or relatively relative when it comes to taste. And it's not, and it's not so in terms of other aesthetic uh, viable things like. Beef. Now that's interesting. So you wouldn't put taste at the same level as uh, sight aesthetic. No, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, why? I would, there are there are aesthetic. You criteria. have the floor, my friend. Um. So so yeah. In terms of aesthetic correctness conditions. I would say that there are aesthetic correctness conditions when it comes to taste as well, um, but those are based in the individual subject. And I think God has designed human beings to be to have different palates and different tastes and appreciate different foods differently, whereas God appreciates all of them, all of the experience, subjective experiences. Why? Why is that difference there? Um, I think it's just according to God's design plan. Um, God designed some things to be, in terms of their truth value, to be relative, like the taste of food, whereas other things are not relative, like moral value. <laughs> Let me see if I understand this. If the thesis was taste aesthetic, you would agree with me completely. Is that correct? Um, well, well, I would agree with, yeah, I would agree. I would take the subjectivist position, but I would say that that's included in God, right? Like these, 
these objects have certain properties that are just yeah, that, that, that's fine we don't need to we don't need to theologize, uh, the, theologize it you okay. would agree with my conclusions that i have been stating so far you would pretty much go down the line and say yes that's correct if we were limiting the aesthetic conversation to taste sensation i i think so it's just i, I really want to interesting it's god's design for people to be different in that for, for taste to be relative how do you know that i i don't i don't have any reason for thinking it it's just it's just why is that opinion not just ad hoc uh just it's, how can you say it <laughs> well just in, from experience it does seem to be the way uh the world is in terms of food taste but i will admit yeah this this isn't something i thought have thought too much about so it's um you know why is why is this why did god create a world where aesthetic values are mismatched sometimes it's based on the dispositional properties or objectives. Andrew and I had a mild, uh, not quite bet uh, on this particular turn of this, the discussion yesterday. <laughs> we, we, um, we were considering where it might go and, you know, what uh, points that I might make. And so just, just to give you a little bit of inside baseball, uh, we didn't know the answer at the time. Uh, I hadn't sent you the, the email that I had sent you, but uh, my guess was, uh, and his guess, uh, we, we guessed the same thing, that um, you would say initially that uh, your argument was more broad and not just about visual beauty, that it would encompass the sense, but that later in the show, you would have to change your mind about that and we weren't sure of the reasons why but we both predicted that it would happen so i might also be a prophet well no you're wrong because from the beginning i i was always broad with aesthetic values right like music i included i include music I include well we're gonna get we're gonna get to music but taste is also uh part of it and i think i i think i mentioned that uh the, the rundown of aesthetic possibilities uh using the five senses of uh sight uh sound touch uh smell and whatever i yeah. there so i mean it's all of that uh has aesthetic content and we may use different words to describe the aesthetic uh appreciation depending on the sense we're talking about but it's all a part of the aesthetic uh condition that we as humans can feel. And so I do find it extremely interesting uh, why you would separate out taste and why you would say that God made it so that that would be more subjective. Because I would actually say, uh, and I think a lot of the audience would actually say, we don't see any difference uh, between uh, the argument when you go to taste or when you go to looking at a painting. Um, it's, it's the same discussion for us and you have to come up with a, a reason why it's different for you. Otherwise your entire argument is dead. Well, you know what, maybe, yeah, no, you know what, that's why I'm changing my mind then. No, it, it's the exact same explanation. Right? God, God created all these, all the foods, all the valuable ex aesthetic experiences of eating food. We, 
it's like it's like saying, well, how much do we have to have? One hundred percent. God would value all of these uh, delicious foods and stuff like that. So maybe it's our human design plan to I should I ought to like olives uh, if I don't and stuff like that. So yeah, upon second thought, I, I would probably just say no. It is the same explanation. Um, and yeah, we we ought to like all foods. God, if God had taste buds, he would get the same valuable experience out of all the all the foods and stuff like that um and we should too so it, it kind of raises the question was jesus ever a picky eater when he was growing up uh i guess he couldn't be i guess he liked everything i don't know this this is an interesting thing that i haven't thought and i am a secular uh, prophet just call me nostra david from this point on um <laughs> anyway don't call me don't don't ever call me nostra david <laughs> I will if hang up. Is, on, we'll hang up on this a, podcast. If, if there is a, a message there, Nostra David, um, you you would admit that's not a problem. Our our, our reality. It is a, it is a problem if you separate it out. It's it's not a problem if you unify it. But the reason it it's still a problem if you unify it is because of your intuition, which I think is correct. Which is it becomes obviously untrue when you consider other types of taste, you simply cannot make the judgment that there is a right answer or a wrong answer to our olives good. Uh, no, no one will buy that. You, you, can, you can make all kinds of philosophical arguments about art, um, but you can't make any philosophical arguments about taste because our own human experience tells us that you are full of it if you think that you could possibly ever have a right answer to are olives good the only answer is they're either good to you or they're not good to you but there is no uh moral or otherwise universal content to the taste of olives and the moment people recognize that they will also recognize the fact that there is no moral or otherwise universal content to one's taste in music or one's taste in paintings, or one's taste in sculpture, or one's taste in sheet fabric, um, you know, their, their bed sheets. The, these, these things cannot be sorted in that way. And it just seems ad hoc and capricious, not maybe not capricious, but um, very indefensible for you to take this position on certain types of beauty. So yes, you have to unify your argument, but I, I do think that it exposes the flaw in your argument, too, in a way that um, I, I, I think, Your Honor, I can rest my case. I don't think so. So I, I think with music, that's exactly like visual beauty and stuff like that. It's exactly the same. There is no issue there. There are. But why do you think it? Um, and let me let me finish yours. OK, well, no. I, uh, in fact, I will mute my I will mute my mic. Uh, and when you uh, want me to speak, you can say speak. Okay, so right. the, the taste thing is potentially different, right? And um, I, I can see my thesis applying consistently to it as well. But yes, you, you're right. It, it doesn't seem on an intuitive level to be the case. There, it does seem to be a difference with food taste, that sense, aesthetic value obtained through that sense or that mechanism compared to other mechanisms. And if that's the case, I, I don't see a problem because it, it could just be that, yeah, God designed uh, a mixed bag. It, it, he doesn't have to do everything consistently, right? He, he likes diversity and stuff like that. And 
It could be the nature of the way we extract value through our taste senses is fundamentally different than how we extract value from music and stuff like that. And hence why God designed there to be a relative standard of truth in terms of personal food taste compared to other mediums uh, of obtaining aesthetic value. You know, the aesthetic value that we get is different depending on the medium that we get, uh, we get it from and stuff, right? Like listening to a song, I, it's a different type of aesthetic value than looking at a painting or eating a piece of food. Um, so yeah, go ahead and talk, David. If okay, sorry about that. No, I uh, I just have to uh, get up and uh, find my mouse pointer uh, and all that. The, the differences so, maybe as an inherent result of the differences in the the type of experience itself. No, I don't. I, I it just seems arbitrary to me. Uh, now, to someone else, maybe it doesn't seem arbitrary. But none of what you have said, uh, and maybe if you join us in the comments for a couple of days, don't go easy on the comments. People are going to come down on you like a ton of bricks this week, um, and I and I hate, I hate that. I enjoy the entertainment of a blood sport, but I don't enjoy it when it, listen to me, audience, I, pick on people who enjoy the fight and can fight at the same level as you with, with the weapon that you're using. But if you know that someone has a particular uh, problem with a medium, maybe if you want to have a conversation with them, change the way you talk to them so that you can have the conversation because not everyone can handle the blood sport in the same way. And we all know who Dale is in the comments. He's, he's a mess after a few days. And he does, he does great uh, lately, but we, we know all of, the, all of the triggers. You can push his buttons if you want to. And there are some people who can push my buttons. And I'm just saying, be, be good to each other. Um, you know, beat the hell out of the people who can take it and enjoy the fight. And maybe use different tools with different people so that we're not just being abusive for the sake of meanness. Um, so there's, there's that. So having said that though, Dale, I don't, I, I think that the animals are not going to be nice to you uh, this week, but I do think that uh, there is some con conversation to be had about this in the comments. And I hope that at least for a few days, you will come along and, and do that because it's, there's potential for very good conversation here. And I, and I think that we've done a good job in this discussion of unearthing uh, differences. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that either of us have been foolish or um, anything like that. I think that we have uh, been able to probe and uh, get clarification. I think it is it will go down in history as one of the best discussions that we have had on Mike. And I hope that we can continue that um, on the on the boards. Uh, there is there's a lot more to be discussed, but I'm I think I'm going to cut it off there and uh, ask you to go ahead and this isn't uh, bring up bring up any new thing that we haven't covered uh, right now, but uh, just kind of wrap it up in a closing speech. And um, I I really do think that um, it's been beneficial. I you know I didn't want to have this conversation in the first season, 
And I can see now that I was wrong about that and I should have. So I'm glad that uh, we have had a chance to, um, to correct that. Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad too. I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation on my end. I thought it was helpful to highlight the differences and where, where the background of, of my argument and then where you where a skeptic might stand on that front. Uh, it's been civil, it's been cordial. I even got Brian agree, Brian with a Y agreeing with me on some stuff in the chat. So that's that's great. Um, and yeah, it was helpful as well. You gave at that last part when we're talking about food taste, you you did expose something that I need to think a little bit about and how that would fit into my argument a bit better and, and kind of iron out the details on that. So so that was always good and helpful, um, especially coming off the solo show that I know you didn't you thought was a little bit too inflammatory. So this was a this will be a great counter showing how it can be be done sub, substantively and, and civilly. So um, yeah, um, in terms of yeah, so I guess just recapping my argument. So so again, we me and David in this episode have kind of really focused on hammering out the nature and evidence for the seven features uh, that I think any given hypothesis about aesthetic values and value judgments, you know, what their nature and grounding is, has to explain. Um, you know, there are some things we agreed on, uh, other features we disagreed on and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, make, make up your own mind. I, I provide all the sources in my blog so you can see what the actual experts who can speak a lot better than me and represent that, uh, how they lay out the case and, and evidence and arguments for each of these features, as, as well as provide their positions, uh, you know, in terms of their explanatory hypotheses. Um, the good news is I give them, so they, they advance the theory in a pro way. I also provide critical papers for each position. So you can see, well, what do experts critique these things and make up, make up your own mind? Um, you know, I, my, my bottom line here is, is not to provide absolute proof. This, this isn't an argument that I've got all the details ironed out myself and, and that sort of thing. But I do think I've provided a sufficient basis to say the argument from beauty isn't ridiculous. There, there is um, something here that could provide substantive proof or evidence that God does in fact exist. Um, so yeah, thanks. Right. And uh, I would say that if there's anybody who can take an utterly ridiculous argument and make it sound uh, like it's not ridiculous is Dale. Uh, I still think it's, <laughs> I still think it's a ridiculous oh, argument, but that said, I don't know of any better presentation uh, of this argument uh, than the one that Dale has made. And so uh, listen to his solo show, try to skip past the, the tonal uh, things and listen to the content. I think uh, it was it was well laid out. And if you really want to deep dive into the stuff past past your uh, academic comfort zones, uh, there's there's some room to to do that. Uh, so I I appreciate that. I think for me, uh, the the most problematic part of this. And it's hard to name just one, but I think for me the most problematic thing about this argument is at the end of the day uh it's a little bit like the moral argument when it comes to the practical application of this argument that's when it falls apart because no christian can tell you whether god likes abstract paintings or not and yet we're supposed to like what god likes we we don't have a way of knowing that 
they can't tell me whether I'm supposed to like olives. They can't tell me uh, whether uh, the movie uh, with Robin Williams, Popeye the Sailor Man, was actually a bad movie. Although I think that I could form a lot of consensus that it was one of the worst movies ever made in history. Um, I, I think we could get some consensus on that. I don't. I think that the people who would support that movie don't dare show their face in public. Um, so, but that's just consensus. It's it's not uh, in in some aesthetically true sense the case that is the worst movie uh, in history. Um, a lot of people enjoyed Star Wars. I've seen ev almost every iteration of Star Wars, except some of the TV stuff. I have not seen the Clone Wars series. Uh, I kind of hate Star Wars. <laughs> so uh, I understand that's not popular. Um, I've tried to like it. I've tried to appreciate it. I've had conversations with Star Wars fans uh, and tried to see it through their eyes. I've asked them, what, what do you like about it? What should I be looking for? Uh, I've watched some of the movies multiple times. I've really tried to enjoy it. Uh, do I not like it because I am a sinner? Is it because, because sinners seem to like it too? Uh, so is it because I'm fundamentally broken that, that I don't see its value? It, you know, is, is there in fact a truth of whether Star Wars is good or not? I, I couldn't tell you, uh, that I don't think there is, but the Christian can't tell you either. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Yes, it's tied to the moral argument. So is smoking a sin or not? Because it really depends on which Christian you ask at the end of the day, when they're done moralizing about what God wants, they can't tell you exactly what that is. And there is only a very narrow, very limited number of things they can point to in special revelation to say, well, this is wrong. But once you get outside of that playbook, you don't really have a lot to work with there. And so uh, this argument from aesthetic beauty doesn't surface a God that I can access. I, I can't access his will. No Christian can either. And at one part of the argument, we're just too broken. Um, at another part of the argument, we're, we're not so broke that we can't see it. I, I don't, it's not accessible to me. And, and I don't know anyone to, I don't know a single Christian who holds their idea of beauty as the absolute truth of God's will. Nobody can do that. Nobody would do that. So I don't see how this argument can possibly have any practical legs in the real world. Uh, but once again, I think that if you're looking for the best presentation of this argument, uh, I think that uh, Dale has it. So uh, next week, uh, we're, we're going down, way down. Satan, God of this world. We'll see you next week. <laughs>